You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. In 2000, the New York Islanders of the National Hockey League announced that the team had been sold. The buyers were two local businessmen, Charles Wang and Sanjay Kumar, CEO and president of a Long Island software company. Wang was an immigrant from Shanghai who had founded the company in 1976 based on his own personal credit card debt. By the time of the Islanders' purchase, the company had $7 billion in annual revenue and had acquired dozens of other software companies in the last decade. The company was called Computer Associates. Hello, tomorrow. We are Computer Associates, the software that manages e-business. And while the Islanders made the playoffs the next three years, that time period was less kind to Computer Associates. The company and its executives were investigated, indicted, and convicted in a massive accounting fraud. Computer Associates is something of a forgotten footnote in the corporate fraud scandals of that era. Was it because it had the most boring name in the history of corporate America? Say it. Computer Associates. Was Computer Inc. already taken? Maybe it would have been better known if it had had a cool name like Tyco or Enron or WorldCom. But forgotten no longer. Obstruction of justice is very much in vogue these days, and Computer Associates provides something of a blueprint about how a company and its executives can obstruct justice albeit unsuccessfully. My guest today is David Potofsky. Ultimately, we broke the logjam by just deciding that for lower level salespeople, we would just immunize them as a class of people because we were interested in moving up higher in the organization. And that was a major change. David was the lead federal prosecutor in the Computer Associates case when he was in AUSA at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York. After that, David was a white-collar defense lawyer at Goodwin in New York, and he is currently the general counsel of News Corp. David and I talk about computer associates, obstruction of justice, and other things. Hope you enjoy it. Good morning, David. How are you? Good. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you were in AUSA in the Eastern District of New York in the early 2000s when you began investigating a company called Computer Associates. Place David Potofsky in his career at this point in time. Uh, How long have you been in AUSA? What had you been working on and so forth? So I started in the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1996. So I would have been five years into my prosecutorial term then. I had done general crimes. I had done two years of narcotics and complicated investigations. And so I think I had been doing white collar for about a year when I started that investigation. So when your investigation of computer associates begins, we're at the sort of the beginning of the the salad days of corporate fraud. Enron filed for bankruptcy in 2001. Executives from Enron are indicted a couple years later. Arthur Anderson is indicted in March 2002, convicted in June 2002. And the president of the United States, not just the Department of Justice, had formed a corporate fraud task force in July of 2002. Um, 
Is there, is your office, as a result of these things, is your office prioritizing uh, accounting fraud, corporate investigations, this sort of thing? Uh, is there, you know, is there pressure to bring these types of cases? So this case started in about April of 2011. No, I'm sorry, 2001. And so it's a little bit before the time that you're talking about. So I don't think the pressure has really ramped up yet. The corporate fraud task force hasn't really ramped up yet. I think there's a lot of desire in the Eastern District of New York to do business fraud cases, but it's largely because that had always been the purview of the Southern District of New York. And so we were trying to crack into that area of law and do some high profile business cases. A little friendly competition. A little perhaps. friendly competition. So there's also some interesting things going on in uh, another aspect of Department of Justice policy in this time frame regarding how corporations can earn leniency from the Department of Justice. The, the uh, Eric Holder issued a memorandum when he was the, the Deputy Attorney General in 1999 that laid out sort of principles for charging corporations and what corporations could do to earn leniency. And one of the things that he talked about was the corporation may need to waive the attorney-client privilege and turn over the results of, his, of its investigation. That's 1999. I guess in sort of like as, as your investigation proceeds, uh, Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson comes out with the Thompson Memorandum, uh, which promises sort of more aggressive scrutiny um, of corporations in terms of are they really cooperating? Are they doing enough? Are they waiving attorney-client privilege? The Thompson Memorandum, and you are, get personally involved in this later in your career as a defense attorney, uh, leads to the Department of Justice pressuring uh, KPMG to not advance fees of people who are under investigation. But these are these Department of Justice policies on corporate charging and corporate leniency um, are, are these sort of things that you are paying attention to uh, as you begin the Computer Associates investigation? Very much so. I remember focusing a lot on the Thompson memo and thinking it through. I remember just thinking of the Thompson memo as being a series of really good questions. There are no answers in there, uh, but it, is, it was a good list of the questions that prosecutors should be asking. And did your office have a view or did you have a view on the waiver of attorney-client privilege, which becomes much more controversial three or four years later, but at this sort of early stage. Um, was that something that you, know, you thought was appropriate to ask a corporation that's under investigation to waive attorney-client privilege? My recollection is that in those early days, when certain companies were in big trouble, they took it upon themselves as a big show of cooperation to waive. They did it unilaterally. We never asked for it. I think that mutated over time uh, and the conversation got confused. And as happened, something that starts out as the edge case, something that's extreme, becomes more part of the conversation. But I don't think we were there yet in the early 2000s. We never asked and we wouldn't have asked for a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. Why not? It would have, I think it would have been inappropriate. I think that uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to do what I can to protect the privilege. And I think using the leverage of a case like that to try to get a party to waive the privilege threatens to undermine the privilege. And so I don't think we would have gotten anywhere near that. 
So tell us how the Computer Associates investigation began. There was an article in the New York Times in, I think, April of 2001 that raised uh, a lot of issues around the company. There had just been a stock drop, and it was an effort to understand what the causes of the stock drop were. And the reporter had interviewed a series of former employees who suggested what they thought was possible accounting shenanigans at the company. Again, it was more a series of questions than answers, uh, but it raised a bunch of issues about how the company was reporting its revenues. And so what did you do? I called the reporter because for the most part, the sources were anonymous. So as an investigator, I didn't know where to start. So I called the reporter to ask whether he would get in touch with his witness, with his sources, and ask them whether they would be willing to accept a call from me. And, and do they? Uh, they did. A few of them uh, did. And they, I was either given their com, uh, the contact information or they reached out to me. And I started an investigation very slowly to try to see what was going on here. Did these uh, former employees, did they come to you through counsel? No, not in the early period. Was that, you know, I've always felt that it should be mandatory in every high school in America that you're taught don't ever talk to the cops without a lawyer. Um, did you think they were possibly stumbling into something where they would, could be in harm's way? I didn't know what it was. I had a totally open mind as to whether there was going to be any misconduct. I, I thought of them more in the nature of whistleblowers. They felt that they had information they wanted to come forward to right a wrong. And I was perfectly happy to listen to whatever it was they had to say. And so you, once you start and you interview these people, then do you ultimately end up engaging with counsel for the company? Yeah, my recollection is that it got back to the company that we were speaking to people and they reached out to us to say that they had become aware of an investigation. They wanted to know what it was about and they wanted to pledge their cooperation with whatever it was. And just sort of tell us about your, intera your interactions with counsel for the company and how those evolve uh, in the, as, you begin, as you sort of move forward in the investigation. So the article had a series of allegations in it, some of which seemed at first blush more compelling to us, some of which seemed less compelling. And so in a way, sort of one by one, we would go through the issues and we would raise the questions that we had with the company and they would come back with their lawyers and make a representation, a presentation to us as to why they felt that what had been suggested in the article was wrong and there was nothing problematic with the way that they had accounted for revenue. And these are all allegations of some variety of accounting fraud or securities fraud. Is that fair? Yes, it was all basically revenue recognition. The idea was that the company was starting to mature. Uh, and so its growth, its revenue growth was slowing and it didn't want the market consequences of that. So it was trying to create an image of continued growth and revenue that wasn't true. And are you persuaded by what the lawyers for the company are telling you? Yeah, for about a year, as we went through a series of the issues, we did find it persuasive. In fact, we did not indict on any of those issues when we ultimately charged the case, which was a reflection of the conclusion that we didn't see anything problematic 
or at least criminally problematic with the other issues that have been raised in the article. Now, just focus, explain for us a little bit what you actually, the, the type of securities fraud that you actually do end up uh, uncovering and, and charging uh, in the indictment. It was really deceptively straightforward. They had what they call a hockey stick problem, which is a ton of their revenue came in at the end of the quarter. And over time, customers had come to realize that if they held out until the end of the quarter, they would get a better deal because the company would be so determined to get the revenue inside the quarter that they would cut them a good deal. In order to fight back against that, the company just kept the books open for five, six, seven days to allow them to alleviate that hockey stick pressure by continuing to negotiate after the end of the quarter. The fraud was that they would then backdate the documents. So a deal that was actually finalized on, let's say, January 6th and should have been booked in the first calendar quarter was dated December 31st and booked in the fourth calendar quarter of the prior year. Now, as you're sort of moving towards developing that theory of prosecution, which ultimately ends up uh, being the theory that uh, in the indictment, uh, do, do you discover that the company is um, not f truly cooperating with the investigation? Well, we always suspected that there was a problem with the cooperation because when we got into this issue of the keeping of the books open, we didn't find the presentations compelling. We didn't find them convincing, uh, in large part because they were focused on the documents themselves. And they would come in and they would show us where they had checked and all the contracts were in fact dated at the end of the quarter. And it was a bit of a non sequitur. Like that's not the point. We understand the contracts were dated in the prior quarter. The issue is whether they were finalized. Have you conducted interviews with the relevant people to just ask them? And they didn't do that. And so this was always hovering over the conversations, which is, why don't you just ask them? And so what do you do? How do you figure out that they're not coming clean on this theory? I started to speak to the salespeople in the organization, although early on, I could not get them to admit that they had also had some small part in the backdating of the documents. I think they were afraid to concede their role for fear of what it would mean for them. Ultimately, we broke the logjam by just deciding that for lower level salespeople, we would just immunize them as a class of people because we were interested in moving up higher in the organization. And that was a major change. Once we immunized them and they had no personal exposure, they just started to concede what had happened. Was it your impression that the, the salespeople were concerned about internal repercussions at the company if they came clean, so to speak? I think that's right. I think also they had, they had all grown up in this culture. It was one of these places where I think a lot of the salespeople came right out of school. They didn't know any other culture. They just lived inside of the culture, and part of the culture was to cover for each other. Was it difficult to get that kind of blanket immunity? I mean, for, to get a, to, just for, the, for background, uh, to get immunity for a witness, you have to get permission from main justice, correct? You can't just make that decision on your own. That's right. Was that a challenge to get this sort of blanket immunity that you described? I think some of it was in the nature of just a written letter agreement with the witness, just sort of a non-prosecution immunity. I think others of it had to do with putting them in the grand jury. I think the grand jury process required the larger DOJ process. I'm not sure the letter writing did. 
Now, the, the indictment as ultimately returned by the grand jury, um, and I say that as you and I know, drafted by you, rubber stamped by the grand jury, uh, it, it's, it's like a law school exam fact pattern of obstructive behavior. Uh, you've got senior executives, including like the CEO and the general counsel, you know, coaching employees on what to say in witness interviews. You've got people lying to the FBI. You've got people lying in SEC depositions. Um, but I want to focus on a, a couple parts of that obstructive behavior more closely. I mean, one of the things that you charge in the indictment is a theory of obstruction of justice based on computer associates executives lying to their own counsel under the theory that they reasonably believe those lies would be told to you, David Potofsky, and the FBI agents who are working with you, and that's obstruction of justice. Um, that's a kind of an interesting charging decision. Can you tell us how you, you came to, to go that way with part of the obstruction charge? Well, the central lie was that they told the lawyers to tell the government that the reason why the former employees were saying that the books were kept open was that they misunderstood because they were compensated on the deal as though it had been completed in the prior quarter. And they assumed that because they were compensated in that way, it was booked in that way. But in fact, that, the compensation decision and the accounting decision were different. So it was an effort to try to deflate what we were hearing by saying it's all just based on a big misunderstanding. The salesmen are confused. They're just confused. And I remember in some meetings thinking, well, that's logical. I would, that, might, that might make sense. And its, in, it's intention was, it, there was some success early on where we thought to ourselves, well, maybe there isn't anything here and the salespeople just have it wrong. They just misunderstand. Um, and it was basically them lying with the intention of getting us to stand down and just using the lawyers as the instrumentality to deliver the lie. And so that was the theory of prosecution, which was an, it was an intentional lie to try to defeat the prosecution that just happened to be delivered through the company's lawyers. The lawyers as sort of a, a conduit or an instrument of the, of the crime, so to speak, or at least the cover-up. An unknowing instrumentality, yes. And was that a, to, to charge that theory of obstruction in the indictment, uh, I, I think at the time it was you know, unprecedented. And was it, was it, uh, was that a controversial decision by your office? Did you have internal debate about that? It seems sort of obvious to me having lived through it, but then when I wrote the indictment and gave it to my supervisor, a guy named Eric Korngold, who's still a lawyer here in the city, he came back to me with that particular charge and said, essentially, David, the charge works, I guess, but you understand this is all they're gonna talk about at the next white collar crime conference. This is gonna be very controversial. He saw it from the be very beginning that it was going to be a controversial charge. And was he correct? He was absolutely correct, although I think some of the controversy came from a misunderstanding of what the charge was. It came to be thought of as lying in the course of an internal investigation, but that's not really what it was. These were lies that were told before the commencement of a formal internal investigation 
just in an effort to try to defeat the investigation before it really got underway. I don't know if I remember that particular white-collar crime conference, but I didn't know you then. You were still in AUSA, and there was talk about this particular theory, and there were articles, or, or at least um, you know, law firm dispatches about current events that were saying things like, well, when you're giving an upjohn warning to a witness now, you have to also add that if you lie, if you witness lie to me, lawyer for the company, uh, you may have committed a federal crime just by that. There was talk of renaming these the Batofsky warnings, as I recall. Yeah, and even worse than that, I got a call from an AUSA in another office that had someone that had lied in an internal investigation, and they called me for guidance about how I do one of these charges. And I had to explain to them, no, 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 that's not what happened in Computer Associates. You're misunderstanding the fact pattern. And I remember sort of thinking, well, what have I wrought here? There's clear misunderstanding, and it's a problem. I think a lot of times in government offices, you, you make a decision that seems appropriate for the case that you're dealing with, but you don't realize the way it's going to be misunderstood and what it's going to lead to in the future. There's another interesting component of the the sort of litany of obstruction charges in the indictment where apparently in the middle of the investigation, there's a, a customer who had a, uh, a bad deal with the company and he threatened to essentially go to the government if the company didn't pay him off. Uh, and then the, the company essentially meets with him and gives this customer like a $4 million sham consulting agreement so he won't, um, so he won't go to the government. Um, and the, in, in the indictment, I noticed that the customer is named Individual One. And I think I've heard about this guy, Individual One, more recently. Isn't he the guy that knew Michael Cohen? He ends up in a lot of indictments, Individual One. He's a problematic character. Was that your office's policy to, to, to name sort of unindicted co-conspirators as individual one? I think that was DOJ policy. It was, if, if it was DOJ policy, I, I'm afraid I broke it when I was in AUSA because I remember um, in, in, indicting a case and whether unindicted co-conspirators, and I decided to name them after characters in Reservoir Dogs. So I, there was a Mr. Pink and there was a Mr. Blue. And uh, I don't think I ever got in trouble for that, but maybe it's, it's too early to tell. So you end up charging the company under what's called a deferred prosecution agreement. Um, these have become sort of very um, much the, the tool for charging corporations since your investigation, but this was one of, the, I think this is one of the earlier Deferred Prosecution Agreements, or DPAs. Can you, sir, first of all, tell us what a Deferred Prosecution Agreement is? Well, interestingly, they started in Brooklyn, in the Eastern District of New York, but they were largely for drug cases. It was an effort to say, you've committed the crime, and you admit you've committed the crime, but we don't want to charge you criminally. We don't want you to suffer the consequences of that. So if you'll just admit that you did it, and sign a statement admitting it, but then promise to conduct yourself in a certain way over a certain period of time, we won't charge you if you fulfill those promises. And that form of agreement migrated away from drug cases into these business cases over time. I imagine there must have been debate within your office about whether to 
allow computer associates to essentially move on under this deferred prosecution agreement. Um, I mean, if, if ever a corporation seems to qualify for being indicted in, a, in the traditional way, it would seem like this, where a company has committed you know, pretty blatant securities fraud, and then on top of that, um, you know, done a lot of backflips to obstruct the investigation. Well, what were your thoughts on that issue? So beyond debate, I think if you froze the thinking at a particular point in time, I think there was a decision in the office that we probably would charge the company. I think we ultimately backed off of that in the internal discussions. And I remember my position being at the time wondering what the additional law enforcement purpose was of charging the company. We were going to charge the individuals responsible for both the securities fraud and the obstruction of justice. They were going to be brought to responsibility. And I remember just arguing that I did not see the additional law enforcement benefit of charging the company, which would have all sorts of collateral consequences for people that did nothing, most notably the investors in the company who would lose the value of their investment because a a criminal charge against that company would have destroyed it. It was a public company, correct? It was a public company. And all of the the senior executives were you know, at least on the verge of being indicted or replaced, so there would have been new management and so forth, correct? That's right. But there was a lot of dissension, and even in hindsight, I would say that a charge of that company criminally would have been perfectly defensible. There was no clear right answer, and ultimately the U.S. attorney who's charged with making the decision made the decision that she made, which was under all the facts and circumstances, deferred prosecution was the better answer in that particular case. And when a U.S. Attorney's Office does a deferred prosecution agreement, or the Department of Justice does a deferred prosecution agreement, they still get to issue a press release saying that the company was indicted, correct? That's right. And I think in that case, we may have also announced charges of some of the individuals at the same time. So we had a big press conference to announce both those charges and the deferred prosecution. And I I actually looked at the press release before uh, we talked today, and I saw that the press release was issued by Deputy Attorney General James Comey and FBI Director Robert Mueller. Um, what are, have you heard about what the, are these guys up to anything topical these days? Have you kept up with them? I've lost track of them. Ironically, the, that was not the plan for the day. When we rode down to Washington that day, the plan was for Attorney General Ashcroft to do that press conference. But he got called to Capitol Hill. And so Comey stepped in sort of at the last minute to do that press conference. Did anything happen as a result of him sort of pinch hitting? Um, I remember this was early on in the period where the DOJ was using deferred prosecution agreements. And I remember him being asked by one of the reporters whether he thought that this was a good law enforcement tool and whether we should be expecting more of them. And my recollection is that Comey was skeptical of the use of the deferred prosecution, but he was there announcing it triumphantly. So he couldn't really trash the announcement that he was making. So he sort of left with no other choice from a communications perspective other than to say, yes, I think this is a good result, which I'm not sure he entirely agreed with. And that was a time when the DOJ went on record saying they thought deferred prosecutions were a good law enforcement technique. And soon after that, they became very, very common. 
probably a little cause and effect there, perhaps. Maybe. There's one other interesting thing in the press release that I wanted to ask you about. You know, this is typical of Department of Justice press releases where um, they say in you know, bold language that the, they describe the maximum sentence of each of the defendants. And in this press release, I noticed that they described the maximum sentences for Kumar, the CEO, and Steve Richards, who I believe was the head of sales, they describe their maximum sentences as 100 years. Mm -hmm. And of course, ultimately, they plead guilty and they receive quite substantial sentences of, I think, 12 and 7 years. Uh, but wh why does the Department of Justice insist on putting the, or did you, ha did you have a view on why the Department of Justice would insist on putting the maximum sentences into a press release, even when everyone knows that the sentences are going to be determined by the sentencing guidelines and will be well, well south of the maximum sentence? It's a good question. I haven't thought about it. It's just a convention that's been followed forever. Um, I guess it, there's this residual feeling that the purpose of the press conference is sort of general deterrence. You want to tell everybody who might be considering a similar type of criminal behavior, you shouldn't do it because there are going to be massive consequences if you do. And so the idea in trumpeting it and, and trying to communicate to people what the consequences are, I guess there's some belief that saying 100 years in prison is the consequence really cuts through. I agree with you that no one believes it anymore. Everybody knows that those numbers are uh, almost fictional. One of the things interesting about this case was I, I think the, the general counsel was someone that ended up being a cooperator and worked with you in the at least sort of the tail end of the investigation. That's right. Were there any like particular attorney-client privilege issues that were raised by virtue of using the, the general counsel as a cooperator? Well, that's a good question. I assume it would have been a crime-fraud exception issue. I can't really remember it distinctly, but some of the things he talked about were, were his observation of sort of a war room where they went through documents that had been under subpoena and pulled out the problematic ones and didn't turn them over. He was involved in some of the coaching sessions where they met with witnesses and sort of gave them the cover story to present to the government. So none of that is privileged. It was all in service of a criminal act rather than in service of giving the client legal advice. Uh, but I don't remember how much we had to litigate the crime fraud exception around that. Maybe you just declared crime fraud and got him talking. Yes. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is the role of email in your investigation, because there's a lot of talk, there's all the controversy today about why don't individuals get prosecuted anymore and just the companies do. And one of the theories is that, you know, senior executives are much more wary of using email uh, today or in the past decade. But the conduct at issue in computer associates was sort of the 95 to 2000, that time period. Did you find email that were sort of smoking guns that were helpful in your investigation? Eventually we did. There were just, it was as simple as emails that were transferring the final signed contract and saying, here's the final signed contract, and it's January 7th. When the, when the quarter to close on December 31st? Exactly. And then I think that there were some other emails that were more in the nature of smoking guns. I, I'm always amazed in white-collar cases where you have companies that sort of are slightly diseased in their culture that you will find people just writing things in emails. 
because they just almost don't think they're doing something wrong. It's so much in the water of the place that they don't feel that concerned about writing it down. One of the, the, the terms in the indictment is the, quote, 35-day month, close quote, which was, was shorthand for keeping the books open for, you know, to the extra five days. Was that term, do you recall if that term, the 35-day month, was actually used in email? I believe so. Almost as though it was a joke, like a harmless joke. David, you've been both a prosecutor and a white-collar defense attorney. Um, what do you miss most about each one of those two jobs? Um, I, I think it's, I've always been interested in the way the law interacts with individuals. Um, a lot of the work we do is for companies, but a lot of the work that we do affects individuals, whether they're defendants or victims or witnesses. And the immediacy of the criminal work, the fact that real human beings are involved and the stakes are personal, I always found that very compelling. And I miss that a little bit. Mandatory guest question. What was your first concert? How old were you? What venue? And who did you go with? Uh, I don't remember the age. It probably would have been around 13. It was, I think, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. It would have been at the old Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, outside of D.C. And it would have been because my brother brought the tickets. My older brother brought the tickets and took me because he was a big Springsteen fan. And Southside Johnny was part of that coastal New Jersey rock and roll scene. Excellent. David, thanks so much for being a guest and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Jim. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. Let's continue the conversation. You can find me, Jim Rehnquist, on GoodwinLaw.com or on LinkedIn. Talk to you later.